0: Don't believe the hype, read the type. This is Type Beast. Take a look, it's in a book, it's Type Beast, baby.
1: Man, you're a really good singer, bro.
0: (laughs) Well, I I was actually uh, in my church choir back in the day, and so I had to learn how to harmonize and um, sing from my diaphragm so
1: bro you're using terms i don't even know what they mean
0: yeah well see um. see that's the thing man like you know pentecostal church man they take that stuff seriously they take their music they're singing seriously so you can't you can't be in the choir and not know how to sing like you have to be trained to be in the choir you can't just volunteer and say you're gonna come because you'll find yourself you know doing park a lot duties real fast Yo, you're laughing. (laughs) Yo, you're laughing. T
1: knows what I'm talking about. (laughs) Uh, So is like when you said, you know, Pentecostal background. Like, would you say the 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 you know the the black choir image that I probably have in my head Mm -hmm. comes from Pentecostal churches, or is that just? Oh yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You can definitely, you can definitely um
0: look at look. Yeah, do it from that that perspective. Because even like. You know, when we look at uh the Sunday Service Choir and Kanye West and and, and that whole team he has, um, the music is just very lively, mm-hmm. and and, it, and it's beautiful music. It's 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 a different style than what I get now. But
1: but you would you say that has that Pentecostal flavor?
0: Yeah, yeah, Kanye's? um, yeah, 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 definitely the 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 rocking, the moving. Yeah, it's lively. I I I I miss it.
1: I miss it. I miss it. I'm not even in front, but you know, it is yeah, what it, it is. is. Yeah, I was gonna say after I paid you the compliment, I was gonna say that it's not. Uh, I'm not really uh, much to judge a singer because the only time I sound good is when I'm in the shower by myself.
0: Oh yeah, no, 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 no. But it's something serious. Like you can't, like you can't be singing if you can't sing. Like that's not a thing. Um, now, no, no, no disrespect to to my reform camp, but you know we have our leaders up there who can't sing, and it is what it is. Um, and nobody, nobody rebukes them because they can't carry a note. You just, you know, it's what's in the heart. I guess I don't know. But
1: certain tribes do certain things, Joel. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's that's right. You know, we're gonna we're gonna shift gears from the uh, let's call it the, the church tribes over mm-hmm. to uh, a, a little more political
0: tribe. Yeah, the political tribes. So um, today we're doing uh, a tight beast episode, and this Type beast episode is on the book called "The Three Languages of Politics" by Arnold Kling talking across the political divides.
1: And I'll have a link in the show notes page to uh, it's, uh I think libertarianism.org is where it's hosted and uh, if you're inclined to purchase the book there's some links and and also they give it away for free as well.
0: Yeah, and there's also an audio version
1: um to it so if you don't want to read it you can or you uh, wanna, to ebook it and read it at the same or listen to it at the same time or, yeah. or whatever your your flavor is they've they've got it all for you. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so this this episode is basically going to uh, set the
0: table for our next episode, which would be on the U.S. election, and so you know, getting into or a politics, future episode, future episode, yeah. So, um, you know, getting into politics, it gets dicey. So, I really, I really enjoyed this book. I picked it up because I wanted to expand my my knowledge of political science, and I am not, I am not an expert. So, you know, you guys will be learning along with me. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. Without further ado, let's get into it. Okay, so the book is basically, uh, he says that this book can help you recognize when someone is making a political argument that is divisive and serves no constructive purpose. That person could easily be someone who agrees with you or me on the issues. It might even be you. So he goes on to say that I hope to encourage open-minded political reasoning, whereby we attempt to think like an impartial judge rather than an aggressive lawyer. With open-minded reasoning, you would apply an equal standard of rigor to evidence that supports or contradicts your previous views. With open-minded reasoning, you are open to changing your views or at least to acknowledging that your views are not as absolute truth. And then he gets into the three main political ideologies or tribes. And so the first one is progressives. The second one is conservatives. And then the last one is libertarians. And so he he describes them as this. So the progressives use the oppressor, oppressed axes. Uh, So progressives view most favorably those groups that can be regarded as oppressed or standing with the oppressed. And they view most unfavorably those groups that can be regarded as oppressors. And now for the conservatives, the conservatives use the civilization barbarism axes. Conservatives view most favorably the institutions that they believe constrain and guide people towards civilized behavior. And they view most favorably those people they see as trying to uh, tear down such institutions. And then the last one is libertarians. So libertarians use liberty coercion axes. Libertarians view most favorably those people who defer to decisions that are made on the basis of personal choice and voluntary agreement. And they view most unfavorably those people who favor government interventions that restrict personal choice.
1: Uh, I think the audience knows where,
0: where I would fall on those. Things, but. <laughs> now, 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 there's a disclaimer. Yeah, we could unpack that. So um, <laughs> he has a disclaimer and he says this. Let me quickly add that I do not believe that the three axes model serves to explain or to describe the different political ideologies. I am not trying to say that the political beliefs are caused by one's choice of axes, nor am I saying that people... Think exclusively in terms of their preferred axes. What I am saying is that when we communicate about issues, we tend to fall back on one of the three axes. By doing so, we engage in political tribalism.
1: And uh, I, I know for me, you know, when I when I heard barbarism, I was like, okay, wait, does he mean like, you know, sort of like thinking of like a barbarian? Like, really, is that what? It, and and you know, so I, I mean, I think for the listener, just. I think the way of thinking about that is like sort of undoing civilization and going back to, you know, very much, let's say the, the true, like tribe, the actual tribalism of like, you know, warring with no sort of civil civility against other tribes. Yeah. Would you agree with that sort of the. the yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Most definitely. Uh, now for the listeners, what we'll be
0: doing is we'll be look, talking about tribalism and we'll we talking about tribal sacrifices, native tongues, and tribal religion. Now, uh, Joel, uh, you know we mentioned the um, libertarians, and you lean that way. Um, did you did you feel like he did justice in defining what a libertarian is?
1: Um, well, I think you know you raised a good point about like it it it's not so much right this this axis is sort of. Um, It doesn't really it's not about definitions it's it's sort of the the mind frame of of way the the other that group or that tribe is going to think about things and so i mean i will get there but i mean this the author's a libertarian and and so um and in some point in his book he does make a comment that he thinks a libertarian approach to a given issue will generally sort of be the most common ground for everyone involved Mm -hmm. um Mm-hmm. And and so he does have his libertarian leanings, but but I would say that the book itself generally doesn't convey it much. I mean, I listened to a couple of interviews with him to to really uh understand where he where his perspective was. Mm-hmm. I mean it's published by Cato, um, so that kind of tells you its its libertarian origins. And as I said, it's on libertarianism.org. Um, so I, I would say though, the the idea of let's call it liberty and author- authoritarianism is definitely the, the, the axes that I generally think about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I'm pushing back on authoritarian solutions. And, and the, the only thing that I, when I was listening to him and, and re, you know, because I listened to the audiobook, when I was listening so much of it, I realized for me, I come to libertarianism as a conclusion from economics. Right, So I don't start from a libertarian perspective. I, I sort of get there based on my economics perspective or, or the tools of economics that I apply. And so I, I was really sort of, I want to say wrestling with myself because I think the goal of this book is is to help you sort of, one, judge yourself. When are you doing these things that that sort of result, re- result in tribalism and sort of maybe counter- Conversations or, or make things counterproductive if you're trying to come to a resolution between you know people with different, let's call it axes. So I was sort of wrestling with myself as I was listening, kind of going, okay, do I do this? How do I do this? When do I do this? Um, and and focusing, of course, on the on the libertarian side. So I think my opinion would be for me, I didn't feel like I was being straw manned. I didn't feel like my positions were being straw manned. And I would hope that you know, if a listener who's on some more of the socialist perspective or or the the liberal perspective, they're not, or or something conservative, they're not going to feel like he's misrepresenting them. Um I think he does a really good job of of you know sort of steel manning, but if you I think it's too it, it is easy for the listener potentially to be like, well, I'm not like that. Okay, but that's not necessarily his point. He's not saying you are like this. He's sort of saying the tribal default goes back to this sort of perspective. So I know that's not really the question you were asking but yeah, I think uh, I think the author does a good job of of making a good case for and, and presenting everybody fairly.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I totally agree. I, I felt like he was really advocating for, you know, when getting into political discussions or thinking politically, just to be gracious. I think that was his bottom line to show grace and to assume the best of the people you disagree with. So definitely reflects in the book. Uh, he goes on to I love what I loved about the book is that he applied these schools of thought to uh, a real number of scenarios. Yeah. To, to real life scenarios where it's, it's helpful to hear how it's applied. Cause you then you start to recognize the rhetoric. So for example, he talks about uh, like, he applies it in the context of police brutality and black people. And so he says, so for the progressive of, uh, framing of the issue emphasizes racism among police and in society as a whole. Progressives put white police or white society at large in the role of oppressors with African Americans in the role of oppressed. The conservative framing of the issue emphasizes the need for order. Conservatives put criminal suspects and unruly demonstrators in the role of barbarian right? As barbarian threats and put police in the role of defenders of civilization. The libertarian, they frame it as the issue emphasizes the need for citizens to be free of police harassment. Libertarians put in the role of uh, coercive agents, those lawmakers who criminalize harmless activities such as recreational drug use, as well as police who employ excessive force while putting those who are um, accosted and physically uh, harmed by police in the role of citizens who are denied their rights. So I, I thought that was pretty
1: fascinating to mm-hmm. see
0: to hear. Because yeah, he, I mean,
1: chapter chapter two, he has like eight examples, and he just goes, "Okay, yeah, the progr- the oppressed oppressor axis. Here's how they look at it: the civilization barbarism, yeah. bar- barbarism axis." And just paragraph after, you know, just breaking down. Give you another example. Give you and and I was like, he's bang on. Yeah. For the most part. Like, I mean, I'm sure some people might have small discrepancies, but for the most part, he just hammers out eight examples to start the book, basically. Yes. And then I think that the the one you're talking about is in a, a little bit later of a chapter, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah. And then he gets into the incarceration and he breaks it down this way, um, with all with the three political views. And he says, for example, what accounts for the high incarceration rates among young African American males is the progressive perspective, is a progressive would look to racism in our justice system and society as the cause. A conservative would look to high crime rates as the cause, and a libertarian would look to drug laws as the cause. And so, like you said, I thought it was very helpful in the way he outlined the way we would hear these political um, views. And again, he's not saying that we are. He, well, okay, sorry. What he's saying is that even those people who don't say that they're political right? And you don't ascribe to any of them. By default, you naturally, you fall in a political tribe based on the issue and where and what really resonates with you. And so mm-hmm. because of that, by default, um, we're in society, we get pulled in. I had a friend who just joined Twitter and um, I told her, she's like, you know, I'm coming into Twitter, but I don't want to get political. I said, Yo, that you can't avoid that. <laughs> you You can't avoid it, right? <laughs> you know, people are going to Try to push for your hand to be political. So this is where we get into the topic of tribalism and sacrifices. And I thought this well, was I,
1: before you. Before you get into, that, I just wanted to say that it, just to reiterate for the listener, he he's not saying like in any way this is who's right or wrong. Yeah, yeah, with, yeah. No, no, no. Axes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, right. Like there's yeah. there's it's a tool to sort of understand people's perspectives. Yeah. Again. So you know, I think you laid out the three examples. The goal here of the book is to say, okay, how does the people with those three defaults with regards to to laws come together and have a conversation while recognizing the other person's sort of starting point.
0: And so, okay, he gets into uh, tribal sacrifices and he says, because we value being accepted by a group, we, we cooperate and sacrifice for the good of a group with whom we feel close. We have much mm-hmm. less natural willingness to sacrifice in order to help distant strangers. In addition, we care about the status of our group or tribe relative to that of our other tribes. Successful tribes are ones in which status in the tribe depends, depends um, in part on demonstration of tribal loyalty. A tribe will expect you to demonstrate loyalty by participating in unpleasant rituals and by making sacrifices for the benefit of a tribe. A tribe will punish disloyal members with banishment. It will reward loyal members with higher status. One or the blue check (laughs) mark. One reads of hunter gatherer tribes in which uh, coming of age requires engaging in some act of war against a rival tribe. In most modern organizations, you do not have to kill or injure an opponent to achieve status. However, many of the other methods of demonstrating tribal loyalty are still very much present. Rituals, linguistic differences, requirements to affirm group beliefs, and so on. We can demonstrate loyalty to our tribe by arguing in support of our group's beliefs and attacking the beliefs of rival groups. The more skilled we become at doing so, the higher our status will be in the group. Conversely, open-minded reasoning may not be as well rewarded. If you find merits in the other group's point of view, you risk losing status to those who are more unambiguously loyal. If you go too far, you may be branded
1: traitor and shunned by your tribe. Man, it's, it's so you you say that and it reminds me um Twitter well no I was gonna say the the hearings right now with the uh Barrett I think is her name the girl trying to become the supreme the Supreme Court judge mm-hmm. and I think it was um uh Diane Feinstein sort of like gave her a compliment about one of her answers and and the entire tribe of of progressives were like you can't do that like they were, you know, giving her heck for complimenting a really good answer, mm-hmm. you know, and and so it just sort of as you were reading out that or, or you know saying that last part that a precise statement is so, um, so like so evident in today, right, in our political discourse, right? You, you're not allowed to if you're if you're a liberal or a Democrat, you can't you can't affirm anything from a Republican and vice versa. Yeah, no, totally, uh, I agree. It's kind of eerie,
0: but. You know, we definitely—that's why I said. Well, I said Twitter and um Facebook, Instagram. That's usually the the reward you get for sacrificing. It almost seems like kind of uh like gang banging, where you gotta, um you know, you gotta yeah, do I, something. I was thinking of that too. <laughs> You're thinking gang banging, where you gotta do something to move up and well, so like you, you
1: got to earn earn your yo, go yeah. kill someone to prove you're in the club yeah earn, yeah of, you know, right? like you gotta you gotta earn your stripes right yeah I, I totally thought of that gang culture totally
0: yeah but you know and and it's 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 crazy because yeah like you have to um now of course you know like
1: not that i know from experience
0: no i know i'm just saying like you know <laughs> both of both me and you are on twitter um, and on social mm-hmm. media and, you know, sometimes we make political comments and, you know, we notice it too. Like, you know, you say something and sometimes I'll put out a tweet out there, just me venting or saying my piece. And then the next morning it's been retweeted like, you know, 15 times and it picks up and, you know, your then, you're, you know, your followers increases. And, and your now you're like dopamine feels good. Yeah, well, oh, yeah, no, don't well, like me. Well, well I don't, dopamine <laughs> or, or 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 clout building. I don't know what you want to call it, but <laughs> dopamine's
1: if, the chemical in the brain. Yeah, I know.
0: Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, yeah, no, I'm just yeah, making a joke. <laughs> but what I was saying was that, yeah, you want to do it again because you're like, okay, well, now I'm getting rewarded. I'm getting uh, more followers. So uh, maybe if I, you know, try to make another comment and see if it picks up, but. Yeah, but then again, if your if your opinion changes, and there's points where you're like, well, actually, you no, know, well, I, I I agree with the other side. I agree with progressives. I agree with liberals and conservatives. Uh, with that said, um, I I will also clear up Joel his definition on conservative. I don't think I would agree with it, um, even though I may I may fall into that camp and and that train of thought. I don't think it's the axes is correct. Uh yeah, well, you know what? I I love the generalization because it's it's helpful to give a framework for people to follow. But for example, like in in, in our context as Canadians, you know, our conservative party's not really conservative. So that could and, be and- misleading in that, like, so for example, uh, Aaron O'Toole, right, who represents um our conservative party, although he, you know, says he's fiscally conservative and 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 probably he said he but he, well, he says he leans libertarian um he still holds views that are quote unquote liberal so he's still um pro-choice um LGBTQ rights and uh climate change guy right so so at that point you know you're looking at it and you're like well how conservative is conservative and what does conservative even mean in well particularly in our Canadian context. So I just wanted to bring that up for the listeners to kind well, of be like, well, yes, that's what conservative means, but in our context Kind of like uh, what uh, Maxime Bernier was saying. Well, our conservatives are not conservatives.
1: That's why we have well, I, um, the People's I, Party. I think you, you're, you're touching on a point that I've heard, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it in a couple different ways. Um, and, and it's about conservatives in general. For conservatives, have so much become sort of the polar consider anti-liberal, right? Like there, there's a lack uh, in general. The conservative perspective lacks you know, some some principles that are held on to. You know, it's it's sort of like as a Christian, you because let's say the nation, the North American nation sort of had, or, or at least America and, and Canada, have a Christian, you know, history, mm-hmm. whether, you know, Christianity was a huge part of the culture. Conservative is conservatism generally says like slow incremental change. So as a result, I think Christians sort of default into a conservative position because yes. slow yeah. incremental change. That's where we came from. Mm-hmm. And But you're, the point I think I want to tease out is that really we've lost sort of ideas or principles that the conservatives stand on. They're just holding on to what we have and not wanting to change it is almost the principle. And that's where I think the idea of like, civilization versus barbarism axis sort of makes sense. Although unlike I think the, the the libertarian sort of authoritarian axes, I want to say it it fits a little bit more closely in terms of terminology, but I think as an analogy of, you know, maintaining what we have civilization versus wanting to destroy it at, and and the conservatives would say at the risk of undoing civility, Mm -hmm. um, so I, that's why, I, to some extent, I I jumped on the word barbarism too because I think I, I don't necessarily like it, but I think it comes back to, as I said, conservatives lack you know some some foundational principles that they stand on. Okay. And, um, Michael Malice has a really good quote that basically says conservatives are progressives wearing seatbelts, and the idea being like slowly doing the cha- the things that are progressives or the liberal perspective today will be the conservative perspective 10 years from now, 15 years from now. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think that's helpful in the sense that
0: like for Christians, we can step back and say, well, this is why Christians can't be associated with a conservative party or any other party per se. But uh, let me ask you a question in regards to uh, tribal sacrifice. So you're part of a tribe and do you, have you ever, do you feel like you, you make sacrifices for your tribe?
1: Well, I mean, as a libertarian, I mean, like, don't lie. Do do I want? Do <laughs> I want libertarians to respect the perspective I have? What? Sure. Like, no, but Just my point stuff. is like, no, no. Because here's the point. I'm trying to get to it. The problem is, I'm generally in a place where I have no tribe because I'm. Because, yo, yo, no, no, here's My grandma the point. says your lying lips are an abomination to God. <laughs> no, here's the, here's the point. Generally speaking, I'm having conversations with liberals and conservatives. So when a liberal agrees with me, I'm like, you're a fool because I disagree with you too. And when a conservative agrees with me, I'm like, you're a fool because I disagree with you too. You're only agreeing with me because I'm attacking your opponent.
0: Joel, Okay. So the point I was getting at was your posts on Facebook. Okay. Right? So your posts on Facebook usually rub people the wrong way. And you've been accused of being a racist and a whole bunch of other things because you've been posting a whole bunch of libertarian material that would possibly score you points with your tribe, but also polarize you from other people.
1: Yeah. So And then my point is that like, I mean, I would say I generally don't get a lot of likes and, and on Facebook, right? Like if I get a lot of likes, a lot of likes for me is like five <laughs> because I I generally don't one, I would think either people don't don't have the balls to like what I post. Um, you know, and and when I say balls, I, I say that actually out of respect because I get it, right? Like there's a lot of people that I would say, you know, talk to me and and, and have personal conversations where they probably agree with me a lot. And then there's people well, that call you out and call you racist. <laughs> well, but <laughs> I mean and I would say that this the funny thing is like those scenarios where I get called a racist is generally because I'm attacking their position. And that's the you know, well, but that's the I, I tribal but that's the tribal sacrifice, right? No, that's the tribal response. Yes, that's true. That's true. Right? Like so the the and this is the dilemma. The the tribal the tribal side of it would be if I'm sort of you know, taking my post and going, Hey, to let's say I have a Facebook group. Hey, someone's arguing with me. Come, you know, come enter, you know, come like things come, you know what I mean? Like I make a post into a libertarian group to be like, go get them. Right. Like to me, that's where the tribalism comes into play. Yeah. Um, but I'm I, again, I just say it, like, for me, I'm kind of like, well, I disagree with everybody. So <laughs> yeah, well, well, but not libertarians. D- but agreed. that's yeah but, that, but, see, but that's the like no libertarians in canada so
0: yeah see but but, that, but that's the tribalism that the the book is talking about because yeah there's instances where the language is polarizing so yes a lot of times you post things and you don't you don't like put commentary and that's fine because the article or video whatever you're posting is self-explanatory but the language being used in it is usually offensive to other tribes and that and that's what's going to lead us into our next section about native tongues and recognizing what brings about that polarization is not just like we talked about the moral aspect and uh, the sacrifices but
1: well and I think the native the, tongue the, you're you're absolutely right where the language is sort of let's say and I would say the the benefit sort of the way that I look at it is like For the person who knows me personally, that turns around and say, like, they're sort of challenging me beyond a racist, they already know I'm not. Like, they know that there's two scenarios that I can think of. One is, like, let's call it a relative. And one is someone who knows me very well. And they both, in in my opinion, are are sort of struggling with, how can he hold this position when I think only racists hold this position? Mm -hmm. And so I'm sort of using my personal relationship or I didn't necessarily do it on purpose but my personal relationship with them is actually attacking their tribalism mm-hmm. because I'm presenting something that is from the you know in your sense what you're talking about the tribal words are you know so one of the examples was like I posted an Iranian guy saying white privilege is hot garbage and you know he laid out his argument and you know the the relative of mine was like, was a was a you know kind of how can you post this like and and (laughs) it's the the words being said are you know their tribal response they don't know what to do with it and so you know it it actually I would say it led to productive conversations because they know where I stand they know who I am they you know they they see my character and go well this how I I don't understand how you could post this right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm.
0: yeah no no and this is what brings up the topic of uh, native tongues uh, or a particular language. So uh, he, he goes on to say that one of the most powerful signals is that the person speaks our language. If someone can speak like a native, then almost always he or she is native, is a native, and natives tend to treat each other better than they treat strangers. In a tribe, political language is used to assert the moral superiority of one's tribe. Communicating using the preferred axes of the tribe is good for reassuring others of one's loyalty to the tribe, for lifting a person's status in the tribe by pleasing those who agree with him or her, and for whipping up hostility against other tribes. What political language is not good for is persuading people outside of one's tribe or improving relations with them. And then he goes on to give this example, which I thought was pretty good. Linguistic differences persist because one tribe often wants another tribe not to understand what is being said. Think of American football, where a quarterback will change a play at the last minute by calling an audible. He shouts a few codes with the intention of enabling his teammates to coordinate while keeping their plan secret from the opposing team. He goes on to say, I doubt that the language evolved in order to be universally understood. Instead, I believe that language evolved to be understood by some people and not understood by others. Although political speech is not as uh, consciously coded as a football audible, it often serves a similar purpose to align one tribe while mystifying another. And when I read that, I thought about... um, I thought that was a good summary of what the problem is. Because a lot of times we're using terms that it's the terms, right? That throw us off. Like for example, we've talked about it many times on the show. Racism. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, without going into it, but racism isn't what I grew up thinking of what race racism was. Or I I would Um, say
1: people are using the same word but mean different
0: things. Yes. Uh yeah, or, or changing the definition. Um, So, for example, and then with terms that now you're coming up with other terms like systemic racism, white privilege, uh, white guilt, these kind of things where people are kind of like, well, well, what do these terms actually mean? Racism, anti-racism, especially anti-racism. Anti-racism isn't anti-racism. Anti-racism is something else. Right, so this is yeah, where it's not
1: anti what we define as racism. Yes, it's an expanded version of racism with anti on it, which now stands for something totally epic. different. Yeah. Right, I mean it, it means something, or but but it's not uh, explicitly obvious from the ter- the words.
0: Yes, or even um like or like Black Lives Matter, and people go on and on about <laughs> what what does Black Lives Matter even mean. All right, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, oh yeah, Black Lives Matter means Black Lives Matter, but you know, you ask some other people, like, nah, Black Lives Matter doesn't mean Black Lives Matter, right? So the so point is that these terms—I I don't know if the correct term is equivocated—in that equivocation, yeah, equivocation—in that um, the words are changed in order to to unify and also to push people out because uh, Abraham Kendi, How to Be a Racist in his book, yeah, he totally redefines what racism is and what anti-racism is. Now on the face, you're like, oh, anti-racism sounds good. But when you start to read the book and you see what anti-racism is about, you're like, actually, no, I'm not with that. And that's where the polarization happens. Because for people who don't know, who never read his book, all they see is that anti-racism is posted on a Nike billboard or it pops up on on a commercial. They're like, yeah, I hate racism. I'm against racism. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody would say that. What's wrong with that? But then you would have people who who've read the book and disagree with his policies and his economics, and they're like, "Actually, no, that's not anti-racism. Isn't yeah. necessarily." I'm not what down. You think it I'm is. not
1: down with that because I don't think it's productive. Yes. All, as yes. Opposed to. I'm. I'm not. I don't want to be. A, I, I think people shouldn't be racist. Which is sort of the. Yeah. You know, standard. Let's call it the. To me, that's the surface level meaning of anti-racist. Mm-hmm. People shouldn't be racist. I'm against people who but, are racist. Yes. But That's not. But that so also comes with theory. political leanings. But yeah,
0: you know, we'll do a tight yeah. beast on that on that book soon. But I think
1: occasion's so, good to point out because it's actually a logical fallacy at the same time. It's it's a fallacy where people are using the double meaning of the word. So you get someone to agree with one meaning of the word, but then you use the secondary meaning of the word to then progress the point. And so now you're, you know, in a in a argument, you're sort of leaving the person you you're not actually trying to be productive. You're sort of trying to win by by changing terms mid-conversation. Yeah, the fallacy of equivocation. There's literally the first page of the book. There's a perfect line that talks exactly about what you were saying with regards to the using terminology. So, an individual will make a point that seems totally convincing to the people who agree with him or her, and yet the point leaves those who disagree unaffected. When when that's happening, it's Really, and this—he talks about it. I think I don't know if it was in the book or he said it in a, in a conversation. It's like a war call. You're just getting people to like. You're riling up your side to agree with you. You're not actually having productive conversation. You're not actually trying to like resolve differences and and find solutions. You're just dog whistling to your own side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, like, from I guess for me,
0: from from the Christian perspective. And we are people of the book. If we're people of the book, we're people of the word. And what I learned early, you know, in my um in my walk with God, is that everything has to be defined by words, and you, and words mean things. So this is where you get into um, terminology, right? Because the Bible will use words, and you're kind of like, okay, well, what does it mean? Well, what does propitiation mean? It means the wrath of God is satisfied. That word means something; it has it has meaning? So. You can't change it. Atonement has meaning. Um, we are reconciled to God. Sin has meaning. And then we come up with terms of um, that describe realities in the, that we see, theological realities that we see in the scripture like um, Trinity. The Bible uses the word regeneration. Uh, we use the doctrine of soteriology, doctrine of ecclesiology, missiology, eschatology. And I'm saying all this to say that um, again, we are people of the book, so we're people of the word, and so words mean things. So when we get into the political sphere, we're using our background, our word background to say, okay, cool. So what does it mean to be a conservative? Oh, okay, there's a lot of moving pieces. Okay, what does it mean to be a progressive? Okay, what does racism mean? Okay, racism is a bad thing. Is it a sin? Is it not a sin? What does What is a libertarian? So the point I'm making is that when we get into conversations, let's define our terms. Let's let's define the terms, and even if we disagree, I think it's just time to um, put more context into defining where we get our terms and
1: our words from. Well, and I think that conversation of of defining terms is is actually really helpful if if your goal is not enforcing what you want on other people, but actually trying to find solutions. Because as you hash out defining terms to some extent, you start to realize you have a lot more common ground. And you start to realize, oh, the difference is because you're using a word in a way that I'm not, and vice versa. And so, when I thought you meant X, you actually meant Y. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not—I I lose the ability to misinterpret you because now I understand what you mean when you say things. And and I love that you brought up the scripture perspective because it's—I I think for you know, if we have any listeners who aren't Christian and who don't have that exegetical approach to the word. There, there might be something lost there because we we understand that the, the the text is written in another language. And to some extent, we're not, I don't want to say we're not satisfied, but but we know that that word that is translated into English comes from a time period when it was written when the the language was much more dense. So, you know, I'll use the the numbers that I've heard, it's probably changed lately, but you know, Hebrew, which is was written with like a thousand words, Greek had a hundred thousand words, and today we have like 600,000 active words. So when you read a word like discipline in the Bible, I, I have to th- realize that the the underlying word is not as simple as spanking my child or or something along those lines that people might associate with mm-hmm. the word discipline. So I I just say that for, because for us, we're like, okay, wait, what does this mean? Let me, I I don't just take the word at the surface. I say, okay, what's the context? What's the scripture? What's the, what's the verses around it? What is, what does the context tell me it means? Mm -hmm. What is the book it's in? Who's the audience, right? Like the way that we interpret the word is not based on the definition of the word. We interpret the word by putting it in its proper context to understand what was the intended meaning. Yes. And and if people took that approach yes. to conversation and, and resolving things, we wouldn't have this tribalism issue.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, you know what I think about I think about um this this t- idea of a logocentrism. Uh Jesus Christ is the logos, the word made flesh, eternally existing as the word. And so the idea of language is eternal and it's sacred and it's absolute. This is why, as Christians, we have an advantage in the culture because we are a people of words. Our strongest weapon against foolishness, for lack of a better term, is that we have dialogue. Not monologue, but dialogue. Because we have the word of truth and we have the word in words and we understand grammar and context and syntax, our strongest conversation our strongest weapon is conversation. So these are things that are, I hope that are helpful for our listener to say, okay, well, conversation is key and not just being in a monologue and posting something online and, and not
1: interacting. And I think this this book really will help if, if the idea of like breaking out of echo chambers. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the next section we're going to talk
0: about is tribal religion, right? So now we went from that, into tribal religion. And so he goes on to say, um, Eckling says, people need to affiliate with groups. Moreover, as we settled into larger groups than hunter-gatherer bands, we evolved a need to belong to groups that embody a higher moral um, or higher moral purpose. For centuries, major religions met this need. But now the need is being met increasingly by Political affiliation. Mm-hmm. What do you think mm-hmm. about that?
1: Um, I was listening I, again. I think it was on the podcast with him. He basically was saying, you know, you talk to someone who's, let's say, a Christian. Oh, what do you think about Muslims? Oh, what do you think about Hindus? Like, oh yeah, they're okay. You know, they're not all bad. Right, sort of like, you know. What do you think about Republicans? Oh, they're the worst. Like, <laughs> you know, you've got tolerance for people believing different things, but but when it's political perspectives, we have zero tolerance.
0: Yeah. 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 No, I, I, thought, I thought it was a fascinating point where he was just saying like, you know, at one point, you know, people united around because people were looking for moral purpose. And so mm-hmm. people were affiliated with a particular religion. And that gave them a moral purpose. But now that religion has died down, people are looking for a moral purpose in the political sphere. Hence why you have people acting religiously about political ideas. Uh, I remember um, Pastor Joe Boot was saying something along the lines of you know, when we talk about people, they, we're talking about people who, how God created them to be inherently religious. And so being religious is not like necessarily a deity in the sky or a statue in front of your home, but it's a unifying of ideas and that people will are willing to sacrifice and fight for. And this is where the political realm becomes religious, where you see people acting zealously about uh, political ideas, right? So for example, you know, you look at a, like a, Pan Africanism, or or Black Lives Matter, or climate change, name it. You can see you can see that there are members. Not everybody, but you can see that there's members in these groups that have a lot invested in it, where it's the end all for them.
1: I mean, climate change.
0: (laughs) Well, no, well, yeah, but but there's a lot. Like whether it's pro choice or pro life, um, there's always like these proponents in that group where you know all it's it's an all or nothing all or nothing thing and that they worship whether you're worshipping the earth you're worshipping the black man you're worshipping the woman right depending on your political allegiance it's still religious and this is where people are finding their their moral bearings with these particular um groups right and well, then well i mean yeah.
1: it's like there's a lot of uh, uh apologetics that say you know we all have a god shaped vacuum mm mm-hmm. mhm and and for a, a world that's becoming increasingly non-religious, there I would say they're filling it with politics, or, or some other aspect of belonging. It's funny I think and it's sort of a sidebar, but I think about you know the American idea of separation of church and state, and I think you know when I look at the world today, that had they seen what we become. Maybe they would have said separation of morality and state, but that's a different. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, the reason I say that is like how much of you know the ideologies are are forcing the state to to or are causing the state to enforce a set of morality that isn't that we wouldn't necessarily say is right or wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like from a you know legal perspective is what I mean, right? Like this might we might deem something to be a more one group says it's immoral, another group says it isn't. But why does that mean it should be the law or or the law of the land? So um I don't know, just uh, a slight sidebar, but it's something I've been sort of thinking through. Yeah. He quotes he quotes from this book called Why We Hate Each Other
0: and How to Heal. And he says that um that afterward to personal loneliness and a decline in community involvement, he suggests the author of How We uh, why we hate each other. He suggests that closer local community connections would be an antidote to political tribalism. Humans are social, relational beings. We want and need to be in tribes. In our time, however, all of the traditional tribes that have sustained humans for millennia are simultaneously in collapse. Family, and endu- family enduring friendship, meaningful shared work, local communities of worship all have grown ever thinner we are creating thicker more vehement tribes around our political differences i believe because there is a growing vacuum at the heart of our
1: shared or increasingly not shared everyday lives yeah uh, he also made a quote just sort of like we have the ability to 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 not live among people mm mm-hmm. Right. So like, I think, I think that's sort of the same point, right? Like increasingly we, we sort of can live in, you know, like he made a comment about, I used to play on a sports team with someone who had a different political view, but it, we have an increasing ability to not, to live in a, in a way where we, we sort of are in our echo chamber and everybody we, we associate with has the same, you know, perspective as us. And yeah, it's, it's a concerning trend in my opinion yeah what is that that we're continuing to sort of be able to live not among people who who I you know go look at your neighbors if you look took a poll of your neighbors I would yeah. think there's quite a diversity in terms of perspectives take any given issue black lives matter defund the police all these things mm-hmm. you're probably going to get a pretty diverse within your you know immediate you know block yeah totally but, but we don't actually live in community with those people, mm-hmm. right? We we can basically live in isolation. I go to the grocery store, maybe I say, you know, give them a wave if I see them. Mm-hmm. But but for the most part, we we live, and I mean, I've said this outside of this conversation, but we live in a manner where we don't actually live in community. We we live, you know, we have our we have community to some extent, but increasingly it's you know, by text or, in, you know, let's call it impersonal means, messaging. And, you know, but maybe we call people here and there. Maybe we meet for small groups through church. But outside of that, you know, we have a handful of friends that maybe we try to connect with regularly, mm-hmm. but we don't We don't live in community.
0: Yeah. No, no, totally. <laughs> now, yeah, it's funny because like we use, we, we, I don't know if you've ever said this or anybody that's listening. If you say, oh, yeah, man, I talked to Joel today yeah man wow. yeah. and 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 it's well yeah 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 you know we were texting <laughs> we were texting <laughs> you know so that that's always funny how like wait hold on did you talk to her or did you text them so that's funny that,
1: that's fine i yeah. probably never would say that like oh i talked oh actually probably yeah i've talked to him recently but not even thinking yeah you probably i that say text. That all the time <laughs> and it's really i just text. yeah we gotta stop that but no it's true because it's, it's not the same
0: yeah So next, uh, lastly, we have his conclusion and what he leaves us with, and hopefully these solutions will be helpful for not just our listeners, but for me and you, Joel, um, going forward with the podcast and that we would improve in our graciousness to ideas that we disagree with. So he goes on to say, okay, here's here's how to be closed-minded. So overall, to arrive at a state of closure with your particular tribe on an issue, so closure on a particular tribe is not a good thing. So overall, to arrive at a state of closure on an issue, you will do as follows. Come to a position on the issue that will be welcomed by the other members of your tribe. Two, consider yourself able to refute any arguments made against this position. And three, be able to account for contrary beliefs held by others. This ability means you will use asymmetric insights that account for why other people are unable to recognize that they are wrong. And then he goes on to say, (laughs) right? So, and then he goes on to say, so solutions to political tribalism. I encourage readers to adopt slow political thinking. So this is another aspect of um, how to fight against tribalism. I encourage readers to adopt slow political thinking, which means seeing an issue from a number of angles rather than along just one axis. So in contrast, fast political thinking means settling on a single axis axes to frame an issue. Readers familiar with psychologist Daniel Kahneman um, and his book Thinking Fast and Slow will notice that I am borrowing from his terminology. So he goes on to say, these are the key two points. First, you can predict how uh, commentators of the three different political persuasions will seek to frame new events. Two, you can slow your own political thinking. You can catch yourself when you start to frame an issue in your preferred language without considering other nuances. What do you think yeah. about those? Are are can you apply any of those? Because I I know when I'm reading the first three, I'm like, oh, that's all me.
1: Well, yeah. So the first three, I mean, I think you know, it's it's easy to. I was going to say like, there's there's sort of two sides to it, right? Like, I mean. Okay, so one problem is how many times you have conversations with on issues like this with people, because we do the podcast, generally you're well-informed, but how many times you have a conversation with people that you're like, they don't actually know anything, right? Like they've got like a surface level understanding of an issue because they heard it on CNN for five seconds. Uh And so the dilemma is, what I'm trying to get at is like, you end up in all these conversations where like, you're debunking, you're like dismissing the worst case arguments, because most people don't have a well-positioned, you know, even from a, you know, in, in, these three axes, they don't, they don't have any of anything of substance. They just have the conclusion. And so my point is that like for, for someone who engages with topics and, and digs in on them, it, you're going to re- confirm those three things really easily because most of the people you're engaging with have nothing of substance to provide you on those topics. And so it's like, okay, well, yeah, I can just, you know, I can debunk anything because every, most of the stuff that you engage with, people have only read the headline or they've only heard it on the news, which does a 30 second sound bite on it. Right. So I would say, yeah, it, it's definitely, you have to be intentional to, to, th- to, to sort of, let's say, hold a position with an open palm. As you were reading them, I was going to say for, for Christians who have ever like come out of a tradition, like pentecostalism and and sort of i don't want to say like denounced it but but sort of went oh okay maybe i don't hold you know there's there's some closed-fisted truths that we have you know basic the basics of of christianity with regards to jesus who he was his death and resurrection you know the means of salvation but beyond that a lot of our theology sort of moves into like okay i'm open to to being convinced otherwise and I think if you're, you know, the more that you have that or, or experience with those type of things, I used to hold to this, but then I got, you know, I engaged with the topic more and I had some reasoned arguments that, that were outside of my original thoughts. The more you you have a history of evolving your thoughts or your precisions, the more I think you're going to hold truth's open palm and realize... Um, the, the, there's sort of three groups of information the things you know the things you know you don't know you realize how vast the third group is which is the things you don't know you don't know so I say that with I think that when when enca- when you're encountered with something new and you're in, you're engaging with somebody who sounds very like uninformed let's say yeah your default is going to be those three things that you listed. Right, like okay, this person I can dismiss everything that they've just said. I can, you know, I don't have to listen to it and and sort of brush it away. Whereas the the I think you said it was two points with regards to how not to do that. I think the simple answer is you have to be intentional. You have to realize you're not as smart as you think you are, and chances are you could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I think you know I felt convicted reading this because I do these things. And yeah, you are right. You know, especially if you're coming out from one camp and going to another. And kind of like Apostle Paul, um, you know, you spent your whole <laughs> life dedicating <laughs> your, your studies. Christians. Um, yeah. yeah, and and studying the Torah and studying, yeah. you know, the faith of your people and studying the Hebrew. And you you would swear that you you got it on lock. And then two twos, truth licks you in your face. And now you switched up and now you're like, okay, well, I'm on the other side. So when your counterparts from your former life come over and they're trying to come at you, you're like, yeah, guys, I know that I was there once. I was Pentecostal in my theology and now uh, charismatic in my theology. Now I'm, I'm reformed or I should say Arminian. I was Arminian in my theology and then I became reformed. Um, I was uh, for lack of a better term, I was um, Pan-Africanist in my ideas and, and I guess you could say for black better term, liberal black thought I held to growing up because that's all that I was exposed to. And then went to university, got exposed to other ideas. And now, um, I lean more to a conservative black thought. Um, so these are the things where, because I'm coming out of that camp, when people come to me from that camp, I'm like, yes, I've, I've, I've heard that argument before. So, you know, so it's kind of like, well, I understand from Christian perspective as a whole, we study apologetics. Like we have to, well, what's apologetics? Apologetics is the defend defense of the faith, right? That's a it's it's a school of thought. It's a science where you learn how to defend your faith against any kind of arguments that come against it. And so we we have a mandate in the scriptures to be prepared. So I don't think there's anything wrong with being prepared. But I think like I agree with the author in the in the sense like you're not sometimes you're not trying to change somebody's mind, but you're op- you're asking them to open their mind, and then you should expect that from yourself to still
1: keep an open mind, especially when it comes to politics, because these things get dicey. Yeah. And and I think that's where this book becomes really helpful, because if you understand somebody, like, again, I mean, sure, you could try to use it in a manipulative sense, but but if you use it in a sense to, so if you're talking with someone and you can hear the words they're using falls into, let's say, the the progressive axiom, Or Axis, you know, and you start talking like them, sure, there's an aspect where you can try to do to manipulate them, but but you can talk to them to garner trust that you can actually engage the topic. Mm -hmm. Right. But and this is where the quote I read plays into. It's like, well, if you're just going to throw any sort of counter like, oh, they they're talking about, let's say, use the example of like defund the police and and sort of just use any sort of dismissive terminology like you know blue lives matter or something ridiculous to you're you're just you're not actually trying to engage you're just trying to troll them right whereas if you you sort of start to speak their language and and challenge them or or engage their ideas you're actually creating common ground and you're it's productive so i think that's where for me this book was you know it's, it's great i mean it's only 100 pages pdf uh, I mean, one hundred and seventy-one. Yeah, but I mean, there's like appendix, further reading, intro. I mean, it's eleven chapters. The the conclusion is starts on page ninety-three of the P, uh, from a PDF perspective. Yes, the there's one hundred and seventy-one pages in the document, but the actual book itself is is roughly about a hundred pages. So um, I would say, and and the audio book is is really really good in my opinion. So I I found that it's very informative if you want to have productive conversations with people who. Are going to have a different uh, starting point than you. This will be helpful. One, I think in, in terms of like empathy and, and sort of trying to see things from their lens, which in my opinion will help you understand what they're trying to say as opposed to misinterpreting uh, the other person. So yeah, that, that's my my thoughts on this book. What about you? What did you take away? What did you learn? What are you implementing? Yeah, so I would definitely recommend the book.
0: Now, for me, I'm thinking, my takeaway was, like for those of us uh, who watch a lot of mainstream news or are heavy on social media, I think we need to be careful of political polarization or, or being politically polarized. I think tribalism is, a strong, um, is strong on social media for two reasons. Uh, so there's a reward for political sacrifice, i.e. more followers. Um, and accommodation for virtue signaling in the form of likes and retweets. And then the second point is that for social media is is a medium of words. So politically loaded words um, are being thrown like from one shelter to another. So I would say the best way to fight back is to log off, read a book and build with somebody in person or over the phone um, and exchange ideas because you're less likely to hate them.
1: Yo, you mean keyboard courage is not
0: productive? No, keyboard courage is not productive. Thumb thugging, none of that. Now, as Christians, I think um, we don't get our moral paradigm from the majority or the minority, from institutions, civilizations, or scholars. We get our moral paradigm from God, right? And so, it's important for us to be be loving. And being loving is hard, and we can't uh, we can't just uh, take the easy way out by letting media or our emotions do the thinking for us. We live in a socio-political world, uh, therefore, like loving your neighbor will re- is hard work and will require hard thinking, right? Because mm-hmm. there's so many variables um, that we have to take into account. Um, so that's why um, we have to apply. We, or we have to think about how, that we can't just apply a single virtue to multifaceted problems. So we have to be gracious in our speech with other people, but also work hard in trying to think these things through because there's so many voices competing for our ears. And so as Christians, we use the word of God as, a, as our compass to guide us morally versus
1: social media and
0: all the voices we hear.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good point. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I would say I don't think the authors are Christian. So in a sense, you know, Common Grace um, allows us to learn um, from other people's perspectives. And and I think this guy does a really good job of, of framing the the environment that we currently see and, and we can learn from that. Yeah.
0: Uh, let, let us know what you guys think. Uh, if you enjoyed the book, um, if you um, disagree with some of the definitions or anything we said, you can contact us at six cents report at gmail.com or find us on Facebook at Six sense Report. You can contact me if you're trying to get in contact with me uh, on Twitter or Instagram. It's Darnell D O G U D D A. Underscore Darnell Darnell Samuels on Facebook,
1: and I'm T Joel N39 Facebook Twitter Instagram, and uh, yeah, let us know. I mean, if if you got a book or I mean, I, I, and don't uh, don't don't I I would say don't even pigeonhole it to a book. I mean, if you got a YouTube video that you think we, you want us to talk about, I mean, obviously that won't be a Type Beast episode, but you know, send us content. We love it. Um, you know, it it just. I mean, I love consuming content, but I also, coming up with show ideas is always, uh, it's great when the listeners give us, give us uh, fuel. Mm -hmm. So, and remember, don't believe the hype, read the type.